Welcome to So Says Rick. Mostly True Stories by Rick Hall. Well, welcome to So Says Rick. Now, you might notice very quickly the absence of Laura Hall. Nothing is wrong. Our marriage is fine. We love each other. I just have somebody in the studio with me today that I think is going to take the place of Laura Hall just a little bit. Not completely. No one can take the place of Uh, Laura Hall. No, and if you tried to, it'd be a little creepy. It would be, wouldn't it? Our guest today is (laughs) Phil Swan. Hello, everyone. Oh, the applause. I can hear the applause at home. So we've talked about Phil because I have started doing book narrations, reading audiobooks, and I started with his first book, The Mozart Conspiracy. And honestly, you know, the pandemic was hard on everybody, but it made me get off my butt and finally do what you've been asking me to do for years, Mm -hmm. was to do The Mozart Conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Explain it. It's a mystery. What would you say about Mozart? Uh, It's a thriller in the traditional sense that thrillers are. Think, uh, you know, the Robert Ludlum type of multinational, multi-character. From what you tell me, there are a few characters. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) There are so many characters in that book. I figured it out beforehand. I kind of mapped it out, and I believe there are 49 major characters. Do you know what I find interesting is that you actually have all of those characters in your arsenal, which makes me a little frightened of you. How many, how many voices are going on in your head at any given time, Rick? Welcome to Laura's Nightmare. Yeah, I okay. understand. Can I just say this? One of my favorite characters in the story is an Italian mobster's son who's kind of a loser. His name is Jimmy. Give us some Jimmy. Uh, without the swear words, he's playing stickball with some kids in the alley. Ah, you friggin' idiot, throw the ball before I shove that ball down your throat. (laughs) You know, it's really weird when you're a writer. It takes a while to write write a novel. Really? (laughs) Because I think I could write one really quickly. (laughs) Well, and Mozart Conspiracy, because it was my first book, took a while to write it. So I'd lived with these characters. You know, and all writers, you you know, you have their voices in your head while you're writing and stuff. And so it's, you know, I knew it was going to be weird when uh, the audiobooks started getting made on, on these books because certainly the voices are going to be different than what I heard in my head. And, and certainly that is true, except for Jimmy. Yeah. Who was exactly, the way you did him was exactly the voice I heard in my head. Wow. Why, thank you. Thank you. The challenge for me is the characters who don't speak in a deep voice. Uh, who's a detective? Barnard. Mm-hmm. In your second story that I did, which is, we'll get to that later. He talked like this. Ain't you no trip, you. You know, and I can go there pretty quickly. But to do somebody like uh, Miss Sugarberry who's from New Orleans, and she says, Come on, honey, you come in here. You're going to freeze yourself to death out there. That's the challenge for me, but I loved doing it. A friend of mine, Johnny Heller, does a lot of audiobooks, and before I started this book, I said to him, What do I do? And he goes, Rick, it's a play, and you get to do all the characters. You're the star of every scene. And that's the way I like it, Phil. <laughs> Hey, you know what? Speaking of um, the stories, I want to play a little sample from the second book, which is called Mekong Delta Blues. 
and set up who Trip Calloway is and what he gets into. This is the second in the series. Yeah, right? this is the set. Uh, Mekong Delta is the uh, second book in the in the series. Cold War Copa was the first book, and that's where we were actually introduced to Trip Calloway. First of all, these books take place in Vegas in the mid-60s, 65, 66. And it's kind of that golden age of the Rat Pack in Las Vegas. And, you know, it's all very much, you know, glamorous and tuxedos and cocktails. And so Trip is a trumpet player at the Sands. And he gets through a series of events in the first book. He becomes basically a secret agent for the government. And in Mekong Delta, he's put on various assignments because he has a natural cover for what his real job is, which is a jazz trumpet player. So, in the second book, I'm going to play a little sample from the second book. Which one are you going to play, Rick? I'm going to play the sample where Tripp is talking to a little girl at a motel who is... cleans the rooms, and he's trying to get information from her. And what I like about this scene is it's one of the first times we see Tripp being the detective. The first book, he's kind of stumbling through it and happens to come out okay. Ooh, I ruined the ending. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he comes out okay in the first book. Otherwise, book two, three, and four don't exist. Oh, good point. But I like this scene because it's when Tripp finally uh, starts to figure out that he can be a detective and he plays his cards really well to get all the information out of this little girl, Tina. So here's a sample from Mekong Delta Blues by Phil Swan. I didn't know how I was going to get the name of the person who occupied the room on the day before, but reasoned... I was a jazz musician, and improvising was in my blood. I considered going to the office and using my knee-weakening Callaway smile to coax the name out of the person at the front desk, but dismissed that particular riff as quickly as it popped into my head. I'd been around the hotel business long enough to know that be it a low-rent rendezvous joint in the desert or a swanky resort on the Strip, All inns tend to abide by the same code when protecting the anonymity of their guests. It ultimately didn't matter, though, as the solution appeared several doors down from room 13 in the form of a waifish young girl pushing a maid's cart. Playing the odds room 13 was now unoccupied, I got out of my car, marched up to the door, and started knocking. Thankfully, I wagered correctly. "'There's no one in there, sir.' The girl yelled out right on cue, and my solo commenced. "'Are you sure?' I replied, trying to sound desperate. "'He said he was going to be here.' I was taking another chance by using the masculine pronoun, but reckoned it was a pretty safe bet. "'You talking about Mr. Wilson?' she asked, walking up and leaving a cart behind. It was then I noticed the girl wasn't so much waifish as just very young. She couldn't have been more than twelve years old. Yes, I am. Do you know Bud? Bud, she said, crinkling her tiny nose. Mr. Wilson's first name isn't Bud, it's Henry. This was way too easy. Of course it's Henry, but I call him Bud. Why? she asked. Just because, I answered. Are you his friend? Very old friend. I'm passing through from Los Angeles, and we were going to meet up here, but my car broke down yesterday in Barstow. What happened? Um, alternator. I'm sorry, he left yesterday. Is that right? Ah, well, I suppose these things happen. Okay, then, have a good day. 
Having gotten what I came for, I started back to my car. Your friend's a very nice man. He gives me things. I ceased my retreat and came back to the girl. I wasn't sure how to respond to her odd statement, so I vamped. He does? Well, that's Henry for you, always giving people things. Daddy tells me not to accept gifts from the guests, but Mr. Wilson makes me. You won't tell Daddy, will you? No, no, my lips are sealed. My name's Carl, by the way. What's yours? Tina. Nice to meet you, Tina. So, I gather Henry stays here a lot. She nodded. At least once a week. You know about his mother, right? Yes, yes, I do. It's very sad. Mr. Wilson doesn't think she'll get better. Really? That's... It's good his sister's here to help, though. His sister? I've only met her a couple times. Her name is Michelle, and she's really nice. I figure her being here makes it easier on Mr. Wilson, given he lives all the way down in Phoenix and all. Do you know his sister? We've met, I answered. So, Tina, you say Henry gives you things. What does he give you? This. She stuck out her head and let the silver chain hanging around her neck dangle freely. A small white charm was attached to it. That's pretty. What is it? It's an elephant tooth. Mr. Wilson says it's one of a kind. Wow, that's really something. And this. She stuck out her hand and showed me the ring on her finger. It was also white. Is this from an elephant, too? A rhino, she screeched. That's amazing, Tina. You're very lucky. I know. And look what else. She went to her pocket, took out a casino chip, and held it up to my face. It's worth five whole dollars. No kidding. Five dollars. Can I see it for a second? She frowned. I promise I won't steal it. I just want to take a closer look at it. You promise you won't take off with it? Cross my heart. Okay, here. I took the chip and within half a second saw all I needed to see. I handed it back to the girl. Yep, it's a real McCoy, all right. Tina! A man's voice called out. It's Daddy. I gotta go. It was nice talking to you, Carl. Yeah, that was a fun scene to write. Kudos for you, Rick, for being so intuitive to recognize that's where Trip becomes a detective because that actually was my mindset. I, I remember thinking, and this goes back, you know, when I wrote the book a, a couple years ago, at some point in time, uh, Trip has to be proactive. Right. He just right. can't be, you right. know, reacting to things. He's got this job, he's got to do it, and he has the job because he's clever. And he's, you know, has a gift for gab and he, all of these things he can do, I need to start showing that. And this is actually the first time, really, you start witnessing his savvy. Right. And he's followed people in cars and figured things yeah, out. Yeah, sure. But this time, he just starts playing his cards. 
I should mention that book is done and it's on audible.com and the first book in the Trip Callaway series, our friend Steve Staley mm-hmm. was the narrator on that, who, by the way, Steve's become a big, big star in the audio world. So when uh, Steve got too busy, I got to do Trip Callaway, which I'm... No, I don't want you to... <laughs> no, I don't want it to seem like you were the... All, also, as um, the story I tell is Rick Hall is who I always wanted but he was so darn busy and right. and plus the fact I could not afford him. <laughs> <laughs> so back to my point, Cold War Copa and Mekong Delta Blues are available on audio.com as well as the Mozart Conspiracy. Yes, they are. So please, folks, go out and buy those books because honestly, I don't make enough money from Phil. Rick, I can hear you. You know, you know I'm listening, right? Oh, so if you buy them on audible.com, we get a little bit of money. Not a lot, but we get a little bit. Tons. Tons. Massive amounts of money. Right. What Tons. Jeff Bezos doesn't get, we get. Really? That's how it works. Yeah. Well, my percentage is less, so <laughs> I'm not sure I'm happy with that. Hey, Phil, yes. you haven't always been a writer of novels. You started as a piano player, right? Well, <laughs> you know, there was that time I was uh, pole dancing down by the airport, but we don't talk about that. Yes. <laughs> wow, I, you definitely need a better job than that because I'm sure the tips were terrible. You haven't seen my act. <laughs> yeah, I actually started out as a musician, as a player, and uh, became a songwriter in the process. And I worked as a songwriter for many years. Still write songs. It's not that I'm done doing that. That's still primarily and you what teach I'm songwriting. As. And I teach songwriting at the Los Angeles College of Music to very insanely talented 18, 19, 20-year-olds who were far better than we were when we were 18, 19, and 20. I know, I know. But we had a lot of energy, so we kept going. And that's a big part of the business, is having enough energy to keep going no matter whether it's working or not. And no matter how many times you're told no and smacked in the face and told you're no good, just go, well, I'm oblivious to that. So Okay, I've known Phil for almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I want you to tell the story of the time... You were playing rock and roll uh, of some sort in, in a big hair band, and you got audited for your costumes. I was, uh, as I, I spent, I spent most of my twenties on the road in the eighties. Picture this, Rick: me in neon blue spandex, wrestling boots, a bonsai t-shirt, lots of eye makeup. I was. Did really, you have a wig too, or just big hair? I had really, really big hair. Back you then. sound like you're describing your pole dancing routine. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong about that. So very similar. So anyway, get back to the so story. Get back to the story. So you know because, and you know this because both you and Laura, being actors and musicians for as many years, we tend to have a lot of red flags when it comes to IRS because we're paid in cash form. We live a 1099 life. Right. And um, and it wasn't the first time I had been audited, just seems, you know, because of the world I lived in, and it was never any big deal. But this time I was getting audited for what they call wardrobe. wardrobe. I had written off a certain amount of wardrobe. So I walked into the IRS office dressed in stage clothes, <laughs> totally dressed in the spandex and the boots and these really tight. You know what we used to do? But, this is before you could buy cool clothes. Right. This is before you could just go into a cool place. We used to get our uh, the band that was named, wait for it, Heartthrob. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was the band's name. We were good. Anyway, uh, and we were. 
heartthrobs. Anyway, we... Wait a minute. You're from West Virginia. (laughs) Were you big in West Virginia or other places in the world? We were big in one county in West Virginia, actually. We used to get our costumes, a lot of it, uh, I would buy in the women's department of Kmart. I'm not lying. I, so because you get these real glasses back things. to the story. Oh, anyway, for so crying out loud. So I w- wore these this crazy outfit and the makeup and the whole routine into the IRS office for my audit and walked in and said, "This is what I'm writing off. Tell me, would you go out in public dressed like this? It's called stage clothes." And they went, "Okay." There you go. You're done. Thank you You're for your done. Time. Thank you for showing up. I'm going to make you tell another story. As okay. a songwriter, uh, you told me a story years ago about you, you used to drive around in your truck in <laughs> oh, L.A., yeah. in your pickup mm. truck, and work on a song in your head. And when you got it, you, you'd pull into wherever you were, any parking lot, and just work on the song with your guitar, right? That's exactly right. I pulled into this parking lot, and I'm sitting there, and the neck of the guitar is out the window of the truck, and I'm working on this tune. Next thing you know, I see lights Right. Behind me, flashing. I'm moving my hands right now. Like right, so he's like doing police twirling. lights. I'm blue. <laughs> that, which we used to call bubblegums back then. Right? Exactly. Bubblegum lights. Yeah. I see this, it's like, what the heck? And I look in the rearview mirror, and I basically see two officers with their doors open with their nine millimeters pointed at me. Right, which is probably a good idea. Probably, yeah. I look at the guitar, and I realize that they probably think that this guitar neck is a rifle or some weapon of some sort. So Uh, I start yelling out the window, it's a guitar, it's a guitar. And one officer comes up, and the other one stays. And uh, he says, what are you doing out here? And I said, I'm sorry, officer, I'm a songwriter, I'm just working on a tune. And so I pulled over, and I, you know, I didn't mean to upset anyone or anything like that and he's putting his gun back into his holster and, he and goes, you shot him with your guitar <laughs> exactly <laughs> very good Thank you. and he's thinking he goes you're a songwriter huh and he goes what kind of songs you write and i went wow all types I, i'm actually a staff songwriter for a nashville publishing company and he goes you write country songs huh? and i went yeah and he goes you know bob over here writes country songs pointing to his fellow officers good bob come over here a second could you listen to some of bob's tune? this is life in hollywood he folks. gave you his demo tape he gave me his yeah. he could, can he send you some of his songs they're really good and i'm still shaking from having their weapons pointed at my little head and i'm like oh yeah i would i would love to listen to their songs that would be <laughs> yeah that'd be wonderful okay we could sit here and talk all day we could tell a story you and i both have a Don LaFontaine story. Oh, Don. Okay. Bless his heart. If you didn't know Don, Don was... The voice. I mean, he's the guy. He's he's the one when you hear someone doing a parody of someone doing movie trailers of In a World... That's Don LaFontaine. Right. We were lucky enough to be friends with him. And we went to church with him. Yeah. I'll start with your story. So what did you say to Don before you knew what he did for a living? My wife and I were at church. He spoke for some special service. And after the service, I went up to Don LaFontaine, not knowing really who he was at all. And I said to him, you know, you have a really good voice. I know some people in radio and might be able to help you get into the business. And he was very gracious. He didn't like say what he should have said, which is, you idiot, don't you know who I am? Right. Well... 
my Don LaFontaine, hey, I'm an idiot story was one time we were standing in the courtyard of the church and Don said to me, this is back in the days when Don had a driver who would drive him to all his jobs every day. And he said to me, and I'll do, I'll try and do my best Don voice. Rick, you have a very interesting voice. I'd like to take you with me one day, and I'd like to introduce you to everyone at every studio I work at. And I said to Don LaFontaine... And you said? Oh, thanks, Don, but I'm more of an on-camera guy. <laughs> in, my, in my defense, I was working a lot on camera back then, but... Oh, my gosh, what I would do for that introduction. Another now. good career move by Rick Hall. <laughs> Welcome to <laughs> Stupid Career Moves with Phil and Rick. Listen, can I do a quick plug for you? Okay, we'll end with that. That's a nice way to end. Yes, yes I wrote these these books and certainly uh, the Mozart Conspiracy and the Trip Calloway series, uh, which I encourage you to read and more importantly listen to but i want to say that rick has stepped in and become trip calloway his and not just trip but also mozart conspiracy his portrayals in these books his reading and i listen to a ton of audiobooks forget the fact that goofy phil swan wrote these things uh rick hall's performance is stellar it is fantastic, and it really should be heard. So thank you very much, Rick. You you did an amazing job on these books. Well, thanks. I'm already set up to start the third Trip Calloway book, mm -hmm. and uh, you're working on the fourth. I'm working on the fourth right now. You're setting up to do Tinseltown Tango, and I'm working on the fourth installment right now called Ships and Salsa. Wow, I like that. <laughs> Well, a big compliment to me is a great way to end the show. Thanks for being here, Phil. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Rick. And sorry, Laura, you didn't get to do this episode. I only agreed to do this because I was told in my contract that Laura Hall was going to be here. Not happening, pal.